0: Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supply for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. (music) This is BatChat, the podcast from the Bat
1: Conservation Trust. The next station is to Change the point
0: Hello and welcome to BatChat, the podcast from the Bat Conservation Trust. I'm Steve Rowe, and these next two episodes form a two-part special recorded at the Natural History Museum in London with two of its staff who, whilst working in separate areas of the museum, both deal with bats as part of their daily jobs. Next week, I speak with the curator of mammals, but today we're with the Biodiversity Training Manager. The Angela Marmot Centre for UK Biodiversity at the Natural History Museum is unique within the UK. In addition to acting as a centre to promote the appreciation and study of UK biodiversity, it aims to address two of the central problems facing biodiversity and taxonomy, namely how to inspire and nurture existing and future naturalists and how to engage the wider public in natural history science. Last autumn, I visited the museum just before opening hours and in a room hidden away just behind the Hintsey Hall where Hope the Blue Whale plunges down at the 5 million visitors who go to the museum every year, I sat down with the biodiversity training manager at the centre Steph West and my first question was what does her job entail?
1: Well all sorts of things actually. Um, so um, I came in originally to run a project called identification trainers for the future um, which was about training uh, people particularly around identification skills for some of the harder to reach groups in the UK. Um, a lot of invertebrate stuff, um, lower plants, lichens, those sorts of things. And um, And following on from that, um, I was very fortunate to be offered a full-time permanent role here, um, looking at how we continue to do that after the project. So essentially my role is the legacy of the ID Trainers project uh, for the museum. Um, So I'm working across various projects at the moment, uh, looking at how we get identification skills training in um, and how we can essentially really decant all the not well, as much of the knowledge and expertise from the museum experts uh into other people um to try and grow that wealth of of skills in natural history in the UK.
0: And you mentioned the Identification Trainers Project there. How successful was that? What are the plans to move that forward into the future?
1: Yeah, so the ID trainers project was more successful than I think we could have imagined at the start. Um, We were very fortunate to get that project, which we ran in partnership with um, the uh, MBN Trust and uh, Phil Studies Council as well, Um, and obviously very generously sponsored by the Heritage Lottery Fund uh, through their Skills Skills for the Future project. Um, And out of that project, we generated 15 individuals who had each been with the museum for a year, training with top experts, I was going to say in the UK, but actually in the world, yeah. around identification skills, both in the lab and in the field, working with specimens. And each trainee got to spend three months working in their particular interest area, um, which was just such a unique opportunity for them. But the lovely thing with that project is we were able to train them in communication skills. And that's really the biggest success out of the project. We've generated 15 amazing people with great identification skills across across a wealth of TAXA, but they are all such good communicators in written form and verbal form. Many of them are running workshops and their own training courses, or they're working on projects where they're actively engaging people with natural history skills, and that's exactly what we wanted it to do. Those people can go off and, I mean, essentially, I guess you could imagine it as the pyramid scheme of identification skills. We've trained up those 15 people, they can then go off and train so many more across the rest of their careers, and they are all out there doing exactly that. Um, some of them still work here at the museum, but we've got people in Natural England, in wildlife trusts, in, um, in uh, various charities across the country, um, and working privately as well. And I'm just so impressed with everything that they've done with all the opportunities that we gave them.
0: And what is it that makes you think training the next generation for caring for our wildlife is so important?
1: Identification skills are something that a lot of people kind of forget about in conservation. And I've worked in various different guises throughout ecology in the UK over the years now. And identification skills seem to be the one thing that a lot of people miss, particularly for the tricky things, particularly for invertebrates, because they're hard to do. They're really difficult. There aren't many people with that skills and that knowledge, and often you know, the texts, the, the field keys, and things like that are verging from non existent to terrible. Uh, <laughs> In some cases, and that makes it really inaccessible. But in terms of conservation, one of the underlying principles is you can't conserve what you don't know is there. You need to be able to identify things and understand how those relationships between things in the ecosystems actually work. That's how, that's the basic underlying principle of conservation. If we lose those skills, and let's face it, we've said for many years now that, you know, our taxonomists are essentially an ageing population. We need that sustainability of identification skills and particularly identifiers with good communication skills who can train other people, who can find new ways of communicating both the skills of a taxonomist, but also why it's necessary. They can engage and enthuse people about it as well. And
0: how do we go about doing that? How do we get younger people and the next generation involved in natural history and identification?
1: Well... It's actually been a fascinating process for me doing the ID Challenge project and everything I've got involved in subsequently because that will and desire to learn it is very much there. I've met so many enthusiastic young people from very young age through to, you know, people who are starting to make choices about university and beyond as well. And there is so much enthusiasm for it, but also a confusion about where to start. And I think what we need to do is to, is to work on making those skills accessible through things like Better ID Guides and through making training accessible and affordable for people to be able to get to. And through just showing that that love and that passion doesn't need to go away. When you were 10 and you turned a log over and you got excited about all the things going around underneath it, that's the best thing I find about ecology and conservation is that you get to still do that when you're a (laughs) grown-up and actually getting people to understand that that love and enjoyment of watching wildlife can carry on through your entire life
0: and presumably being the center for uk biodiversity means that you've got a huge responsibility for all our biodiversity including our bat species what work does the center do to help to conserve species in general but also bats specifically and how closely do you liaise with bct on this
1: so um we do, we do quite a lot of things in the centre. Um, our biggest role really is about making the museum as accessible as possible to people who want to develop their ID skills. So, as well as training, um, we run, um, an identification and advisory service for literally anyone can email us, uh, ring us up, post us a specimen that they found, and we'll help them to identify it. We also offer a, a visitor space so people can come in and they can start to work on their own ID skills using our microscopes and our photo stackers and things like that for free too. Um, so they can come in and, and use all of our facilities. Um, and then we also support recording groups and wildlife groups and things as well. We've got a a space that people can come and use, um, and it's used by a lot of groups and societies around the world to run their own workshops and to spread their own information out to other people. But some of the things that people don't realise that we're necessarily doing from here is we also manage the UK uh, list of species. So that goes off to the MBN. So we essentially manage the names of everything in the UK. Um, So all the synonyms, all the confusion in taxonomy when groups get split or lumped back together, uh, we manage all of that and then pass that information on to the MBN and to other organisations like the JNCC um, to support that conservation effort and recording effort as well. And then we run things like citizen science projects to get the general public enthused and contributing to science And crucially for us, it's about getting people contributing to science so that they take that ownership, feel involved in it, and are actually generating useful information, not just throwing data into a pit, which is very disengaging. So a lot of what we're doing is about engaging people and ins- hoping to inspire them to be enthusiastic about the wildlife we've got right on our doorstep. Um, so we're doing all sorts of things. And then we also liaise with um, other organisations and with the rest of the science life sciences department too, uh, supporting research. Um, and we've recently started up a few projects looking at uh, the use of eDNA in uh, conservation uh, so we're working on two projects at the moment uh, one of which is just about to start it's really exciting because it's around chalk grass and restoration in south london and that's going to be from our side of it we're, well, we're working with london wildlife trust and um, butterfly conservation on that one and that's a project that's been sponsored by the players of the people's postcode Lottery to do all this amazing restoration work. But the bit that we're working on is the really exciting science side of it, uh, where we're looking to see if through, um, through things like malaise traps and pitfall traps, if we can sequence and barcode the species within those traps and therefore get a much more effective, faster list of invertebrates particularly, which can then be used for conservation. One of the biggest issues with conservation management, particularly for insects and habitats, of course, is um, it's it's very hard to get an invertebrate species list, or it can take an awful long time, because it takes some incredible skills to get all of these species groups down. Often you might need to send samples off to multiple different experts, which may take time to get back, um, in some cases, if at all. With the Techniques that we're going to be trialling um, through that project, um, it would be a very very rapid turnaround of a species list, and then we can really start to involve invertebrates in conservation, and of course invertebrates vital for bats. Yeah. Um, so what we're working on, well, we're not currently running any projects specifically around bats. We're very much looking at that whole ecosystem um, scale of conservation and how. Emerging science, like the um, eDNA work, can uh, can influence ecosystem-level conservation and therefore support the, the higher orders, like you know, predatory species like bats, um, as part of it.
0: So how often do you encounter bats in your day-to-day job? I know it says on your bio on the Natural History Museum site that you started off as a bat consultant yes do you still do any of that
1: i try to yeah um bats will always be my first love um so uh from a bat perspective i i got addicted to bats when i was a kid when i was 12 i went on a bat walk and that was it for me it's like bats are brilliant because they're just fascinating um and i've been very lucky that all the way through my voluntary experience and through my paid career I've been able to incorporate bats into all of it um, so yes so I did consultancy immediately before I came here but I've also um, done lecturing and training around bats um, worked uh, in local government specifically, again, specifically on bat conservation and planning um, and been heavily involved in it through everything that I've done um, in the museum Um, I get to do um, a lot of communication um, around the importance of bats Um, so I run um, lectures and talks over in the Attenborough studio uh, some of our nature lives um, which are run um, as 45 minute-ish talks to the public Uh, they're free, anyone can come in Um, I don't have the next one booked in at the moment but I run those scattered throughout the year Um, I do a lot of work front of house as well doing display stands and things with with the public uh for the museum and a lot of that is i've been working quite a lot on the sort of predator prey arms race essentially between bats and moths and that always fascinates people and gets people interested in that connection between moths and bats i've also um been actually helping out with some of the bat surveys on the museum most recently not actually on this site yet, but we've got another site over at Tring, uh, the old Rothschild Museum, uh, which is a brilliant location for bats. Uh, so I got to do a bat survey on that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was nice to dust off the old uh, consultancy credentials and uh, wave the bat license around, and um, yeah, actually get to do some some proper bat work uh, again, which which is great fun. Any nice species? Uh, nothing particularly on that one. Just um, we had some we know that we've got Bran Longuids and Pipistrels in the main Rothschild building um, but we had noctules Overhead and uh, Soprano and Common Pipistrels so it was nice to dust off the bat detectors again and uh, and do that and I also do um, some bat walks with Hyde Park Uh, so through the Royal Parks um, I help uh, out on some of their bat walks and come along as a bit of a specialist to uh, add a bit more into that great stuff and, uh, yeah so my bat work now is kind of scattered whenever I got the opportunity it's always great fun um, and it's great to still have that connection um, to bats um, and obviously uh, Roberto who I think you're speaking to um, for another one of these uh, yeah we try and team up occasionally and, uh, and, and chat bats uh, whenever we can and uh, support the collections
0: and you said you haven't done any surveys on this site here at the main South Kensington site. There plans to do that in the future, because you've got a lovely wildlife garden out the back, do. obviously. do,
1: yes. Yeah, thanks for mentioning the wildlife garden. It, the wildlife garden is great. If uh, people haven't been, it's, it's really worth a, a look. Um, so there are bat surveys that are done on that by the London Bat Group. Mm-hmm. Um, so they uh, set up some man bats for us every year um, so we can see what's flying over um, and we've got a few bat boxes up there as well, nothing's ever been occupied so yet. far yet, there's always a chance they have been up for quite a while but you never know um, so yeah, so they, they also get checked by London Bat Group periodically too but keep, keep fingers crossed that someday uh, something might uh, pop in and, uh, and find one um, but yeah, so as far as we're aware we don't have bats roosting on the site um, but I have just discovered that no one's actually been up into the lofts in the towers. Ooh. So uh, I'm sort of eyeing those up at the moment <laughs> to see if I can get the keys.
0: Which <laughs> are presumably very hard to get hold of.
1: <laughs> no, no. Uh, I'm really hoping our estates team let, let me in to, uh, to go and have a look.
0: <laughs> and how do you see the role of the museum in the future of conservation as a whole? Will the collection still be as important as they are today? Or do you see moving out into the field and the digital world of collections and so on? Yeah,
1: So museums have to change. Um, science is changing, conservation is changing and museums very much have to keep up with that. Um, I mean, the reason we built the Darwin Centre 10 years ago was to have better facilities for collection storage. But part of that is around um, storage of genetic material as well. Um, and that is very much how the museum is going forward we're currently working on two very ambitious projects uh, one of which is around digitizing our existing collections uh, so to make them more available to the people to use um, particularly for scientific research Uh, a lot more 3D scanning of large objects but also um, imaging of of objects as well uh, so that people can discover what we've got in our collections more Uh, we're also digitising the data associated with collections as part of that project Um, uh, so people can access the information around the specimens and the collections much more readily which is great because that's how we get the museum out of just its physical location in central London the advantage we've always got in collections is it's not just a static collection people think about you know museum collections as being a a static collection of very old very dusty taxidermy and a lot of pinned things the important part of museum collections is it lets you time travel mm. The time series of material that we have in here, from material from the 1700s and earlier in some cases, um, through to modern material, we're still collecting actively now to keep that time series alive. means that you can look at changes in flowering time, you can look at changes in distribution, changes in abundance, changes in our understanding of species, morphology of species may change over time. And obviously where we're working in a, a changing environment and a changing climate... That's vital information to know, and we can't do that without that time series of information. So it's critical that we keep collecting material, but also that we look at new ways that material can be used. So um, one of the projects we're working on at the moment is going to be around full genome sequencing of material from the UK. That's entirely revolutionary. The ability and the speed with which we can full genome sequence material now is unprecedented. So we need to be ready to collect and to hold that kind of material. Um, You may have seen uh, quite a lot of uh, press material that came out a couple of weeks ago around a field trip that we took up near Liverpool. deliberately collecting material but collecting it straight into liquid nitrogen so that we preserve all of the genetic material and therefore the quality of that material for the future um, so that we can go off and we can sequence material but we've got the material able to do that it requires a different type of storage to what we used to yeah. so that we're having to work on um, and different ways of collecting and all sorts of things but very much it's about making sure that the museum collections are ready for future technology as that comes through and being very much part of the development of that technology because it is going to change how we do conservation and the museum is very much at the, at the forefront of doing that at the moment
0: I'm looking forward to the next generation of bat conservationists how many of the children who visit the museum take a genuine interest in bats is it more difficult to foster interest in less obvious and colourful taxes such as books rather than say birds or flowers
1: I think the second you get Actually, it doesn't matter if it's a young person, actually, or if it's an adult. I've, once you actually physically show people something, they're incredibly curious. And you can have everything from, you know, someone screaming because they've just seen a moth, um, even though it's quite clearly got a pin through it and has done for quite some time. And I've had that. <laughs> um, through to actually being able to watch you know, video clips of, of bats emerging from roosts um, or, you know, seeing a taxidermy at bat in the hand, people almost instantly get fascinated. Once they're fascinated, they're curious. Someone once told me, you can't be both curious and afraid. The, the two can't coexist. So as soon as you've got their curiosity, the fear around bats, or, which does still happen, or fear around moths and, and things like that, goes away and people get fascinated. And there are so many in-depth stories about behavior that it's always going to hook people in it's just having that opportunity in that vehicle to be able to show people what it is about bats that's going to fascinate them as an individual and knowing how to communicate that and once they've got that fascination they're hooked and they'll always take that little snippet of information away with them even if they don't do anything with it it's always going to be there and they're always going to think slightly differently so the opportunity that this role even though I'm not Working on bats specifically in the museum. The opportunity I've had to hook people into bat conservation, change their minds a little bit about those terrifying animals <laughs> flying around in the dark. Um, it's, it's been a fascinating opportunity to do that and really shows the value of good communication and the value of having collections that you can just put in some, in front of someone, put in their hand and go, that's amazing. This is why I love it. It's why you should love it as well.
0: And what is it about the nocturnal world that you love so much?
1: It's still so unexplored. Often, when you're out doing bat surveys, you feel like you've got the whole world to yourself. <laughs> So you don't let your imagination run too yeah. wild at a certain <laughs> point. Um, but you feel like it's, it's just you and, and the wildlife out there when you're sat out there doing a bat survey sometimes. And I love that connection with nature, that fact that you're, you're getting a glimpse into a secret world that's hidden from so many people and it's fascinating and it's complex and is full of different social interactions and complexity around predator-prey interactions and all that sort of stuff. I find that as exciting and amazing as when I first discovered it when I was a kid and I genuinely hope that never goes away. And I, yeah, 41, I can't see that happening now. I think I'm hooked.
0: <laughs> and what do you wish had known when you started as a bat surveyor that you know now? Oh,
1: that's a good question. Um, never forget the coffee <laughs> for a start um that this fascination interest is always going to be a part of who you are, and just to not hide try and hide the geek just yeah, it's absolutely part of who I am and to just be okay with that
0: (laughs) and finally which three words would you use to describe the bat conservation movement
1: passionate everybody I always come across when they're working with bats they are the most enthusiastic wonderful people I ever get to meet Um, science-led I know that's a cheat and it's two words (laughs) but it's hyphenated (laughs) But a lot of what we do around bat conservation is so driven by science. It, it's always had to be. If we want to research bats, we've got to have bat detectors and now thermal imaging and infrared video and all sorts of you know, things coming through. Um, and we've always been very much led by the science, which is great. And communicative. We love talking to people about bats, whether they want to hear about it or not, but we love talking to people about bats, and I think that's one of our biggest strengths.
0: Steph West, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much.
0: That was Steph West, Biodiversity Training Manager at the Natural History Museum. Next time, I talked with the museum's curator of mammals, Rodrigo Miguez, about how he helped describe a new species of bats which had previously lain undiscovered on a shelf in the collections for 30 years. I knew that there was a colleague of mine uh, from Thailand coming to visit and he was particularly interested in Rhinolophids in general. We had a look at one of the species that was uh, there and then he's noticed that particular specimen was quite different from the rest. He said, oh, maybe this is a new species. So what do we need to do in order to verify this? If you tap that subscribe button, the next episode will automatically download onto your smart device. Now, lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the Batchat logo on, and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of Bat chat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mill store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the Bat chat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to Batchat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow Batchat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.